Welcome back to The Big Show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, episode, what, are we up to 70 yet? Uh, actually, we've passed. We've passed 71. 71. This is episode 71. There we go. It's a milestone day. Is it really? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> my, my organist celebrated 70 yesterday, and I just started to panic because I realized that I'll be losing her sooner than later as our organist. Uh, yeah, at 70. It's uh, yeah. writing's on the wall on that one. I was going to say, so maybe episode 71 is just like an old organist. They're going to lose us sooner than later. <laughs> uh, and I had promised somewhat that we wouldn't probably drop another episode for a little while. And here we are recording one. And here so. we are. Yep. Squeezing it in, making it a priority. It is. It is. Well, Melanchthon's a priority because he's so good. He's so good. There we go. It is good. And as always, we are your hosts. If you don't know already, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. I'm here, ready to go. And I am Pastor Don Riley. And as noted, we're going to dive back into uh, Philip Melanchthon's lucky communes this week on the power of the gospel. <laughs> New and creative ways to pronounce Latin. That's right. Uh, we left off last episode with grace and uh, Philip's explanation, uh, meditation on grace. This week now, we're going to dive into justification and faith. Not justification by faith or justification through faith, but justification and faith. I was thinking a little bit about this uh, before we dig into it, the, you know, how we, hmm, the word grace is kind of a, can be a flexible word if mm -hmm. it's not well-defined. And, and uh, Philip here did a great job of defining it. So go back and listen to episode 70. Um, and we have all these big church words, right? Right. I call them, I don't know what you call them. I call them like five or $10 church call, words. Yeah, I call them $10 church words. $10 church words. and Like the $10 milkshake. It isn't the the kind of thing you we we don't avoid using the word. And I, a lot of times, I've had pastors and even professors substitute in some other expression to try to explain it. Mm. You know, just as if I'd never sinned, for example, for justification. Sure. And it it's part of it, but it doesn't quite get to it, right? Right. It's it's a it's kind of like an analogy or a um, object lesson. It just right. Maybe it teaches some aspect, but it doesn't. It doesn't just do the job that the word itself does when mm -hmm. well-defined. Well, and I've said before, my one of my first Greek professors noted to us in class, never use one Greek word or Latinized or Engli Anglicized Latin word or Anglicized Greek word when 10 words will do. Hmm. And what he meant as a preacher is, for example, I'll, I'll quote from Lincoln here, to sum it all up, grace is nothing but the forgiveness or remission of sins. So what I'll do then in oratory and preaching and teaching is I'll say the word grace, but then I'll pause, make a comma, comma. and then yeah. and then I'll add the forgiveness of sins. Like yeah. that so that this is this word. I'm not going to shirk from saying it as you noted, but I'm also then going to qualify with this definition of the word what the word means. Then. Grace. So we're all and by that page. I mean the yes, free forgiveness exactly. of sins in Jesus Christ. Yes. Right. And it's a simple rhetorical device, but I think it's effective in educating and catechizing your hearers, whether it be in Bible study, pastoral care, or from the pulpit. Mm. It's just to say, let's not assume that we all understand that grace means this. And that's really actually a Lutheran distinctive from the get-go. The history mm -hmm. of Lutheran churches, I, I think we've said it before, but um, Luther's exegetical that is interpretive technique of the bible is mm -hmm. historical grammatical right right so historic context for the text itself like when mm -hmm. did this happen what was going on you know who are the pharisees who are the jews whatever it is right and then uh the grammar you know how are the words mm -hmm. put in order god works through word right i mean <laughs> the word becomes flesh words mm -hmm. matter um and the, i 
maybe it's a little fatiguing for folks sometimes as you and I go through the text and that we're we're uh, nitpicky, if you like. Like this sure. word is here for a reason. That's just a word. Well, for those who don't know, Luther is really one of the first people to be able to do this because mm. you, with the advent of the printing press in the 1490s, then into the early 1500s, you had Hebrew primers, Greek primers being published that were widely available to anyone who could afford to buy them. Likewise, the influence of humanism and their motto, ad fontes, back to the source, the, the source material was available more broadly because the printing press, you could replicate these texts and then distribute them. Mm -hmm. But yeah. then the languages were also available for really the first time because of the primers and the lexicons that were available. And as a consequence, Luther, when he translates the Greek, for example, into German, he has Erasmus's Greek New Testament open in front of him as a point of reference because Erasmus is really, there was a Spaniard who published a Greek New Testament before Erasmus, but Erasmus is always given credit for really publishing the first Greek New Testament um, at that time. That was, that was widely available. used. Yeah. That was widely used. And Luther then is able to, because he's got a Greek lexicon, he is, he, well, he has Melanchthon with him too, which helps because Melanchthon is a, is a genius <laughs> at languages. Yeah, great resource there. Luther is actually able to pick out in Erasmus's Greek New Testament where Erasmus cut and pasted the Vulgate, hmm. kind of retrofitted it to the Greek. So what would happen is that when Erasmus encountered a, a space in the text, there was no Greek there in the manuscript. He would take the Latin and translate it backwards into Greek and then put that in that space. Oops. And so Luther, working with the original languages, was able to recognize, for example, let's say you're translating Mark's gospel. Well, Luther and Melanchthon both recognize this is the kind of Greek that Mark uses. And this is a different kind of Greek than say John's gospel. Right. So then all of a sudden you come across a phrase or a paragraph or a sentence and it doesn't sound like Mark's voice. And the reason is it's not. It's the Vulgate that was retrofitted to for the Koine Greek. That's that really wasn't possible before that time because mm -hmm. of just the there wasn't available to you those sources. Therefore, the Reformation Influence of humanism, influence, uh, especially of humanism pr predominantly, sure. allows us to develop what eventually became called hermeneutics. That is, how do you read a text? Yeah, the art of interpretation. But also the art of exegesis. What we, you and I understand by exegesis, where you and I sit down, we open our Nestle All in New Testament, and we translate. And we have, maybe we have the ESV open in front of us, maybe Luther's Bible open in front of us, whatever resources we use. Before Luther and the Reformation, that wasn't really possible, broadly speaking. Yeah, and I think we talked about it uh, previous with Melanchthon, and, and this would apply to us too, that we stand under the text rather than stand over the text. Uh, maybe another way to communicate that is, um, you know, the, the way that some folks might interpret a text is actually they do violence to it, so they twist or turn mm -hmm. it to their objective or aims or what they hope that it says. Uh, like a bare reading of a text often doesn't allow for such things. Um, mm -hmm. It actually does violence to you <laughs> more right. than the other way around, um, undermining your expectations, hopes, dreams. Right. Um, and, you know, Jesus has hard sayings, for example. And mm -hmm. what, what makes them a hard saying? Not that he said them or that they're not easy to understand. It's just we just don't like them. <laughs> right. You know? Right. 
And so that's, I mean, I think that's a Lutheran distinctive, right? It's just allow the text to speak. Uh, don't do violence to it, whether through interpretation or importing Vulgate into Greek and just let the text speak. Right. Um, and so let, let like a term like justification or faith be defined by God's word rather than right. um, kind of force what we hope that it means upon the text. Right. And one of the consequences then to bring it back around is we don't have to accept the late medieval Roman Catholic description of grace or definition of grace, which nope. may not have anything to do with the original Hebrew or Greek meaning as it's used in the context of Joshua or Matthew's gospel. Right. Now we can actually define grace based on the language. And we mm -hmm. can actually explain that grace meant this to the Romans, but it meant this then to the medievals but it means this to us then. And mm -hmm. we can also make this distinction philosophically, theologically, generationally, we can do all of that. And so we come out the other side of saying, why do words matter? Why does context matter? Because we don't want to be taken slave again by an institution that then says, this is what this word means. Mm. And that's, it's unquestionable. Yeah. And well, this was a whole exercise we had yesterday, um, you know, where we adopt a phrase, uh, and uncritically almost to the, you know, it, be, it gets used in like say our worship materials. Sure. Like blessing. And, yeah. And we, we adopt it or offering, right? Yeah. And not think about like, what's the origin of that word or what is, it? I mean, even just what does it convey? What's mm -hmm. the natural meaning of that word in our context? And is it what we're actually trying to convey theologically in that, you know, in its use? Uh, rather we just keep saying it because it's in the book or whatever <laughs> and somebody you know has the audacity to come along and say well, maybe we should use a different word here this word right. doesn't really work i mean worship is another one we've talked about right mm -hmm. you know where it, it might convey what we intend to but there may be a better way of saying it sure mm -hmm. absolutely all right that being said then define the word we're now gonna now we're gonna define justification and faith so Philip begins, and this is divided up now into points. So this is point number one. Therefore, Melanchthon writes, we are justified when put to death by the law, we are made alive again by the word of grace promised in Christ. That is the free forgiveness, right? <laughs> we yeah. talked about, yeah. So the gospel forgives our sins and we cling to Christ in faith. Not doubting in the least that the righteousness of Christ is our righteousness. That the satisfaction Christ wrought is our expiation and that the resurrection of Christ is ours. In a word, we do not doubt at all that our sins have been forgiven and that God now favors us and wills our good. Nothing therefore of our own works, however good they may seem to be, constitutes our righteousness. But faith, and he writes this in all capital letters, mm -hmm. faith alone in the mercy and grace of God in Christ Jesus is our righteousness. And that too is capitalized, all capitals. You know, he's fired up when he starts doing all caps. Right? Yeah, he starts all caps. He goes all Luther on that, <laughs> all caps, screaming. But notice how, again, we talked about this in relation to the power of the law and the power of the gospel. Philip gets right to the point. We are justified when we are put to death by the law and made alive again by the word of grace that is promised in Christ. The gospel forgives our sins. We cling to Christ in faith. We don't doubt that the righteousness of Christ now is ours. Christ has made satisfaction. He's expiated us. He's the, the blood sacrifice, the mercy seat, mm -hmm. and that the resurrection is ours. So it's actually three parts. What is justification? One, we're made alive by the word of grace. Two, 
that the righteousness of Christ is our righteousness. And three, because of what Christ has done for us, his resurrection is our resurrection. Mm-hmm. So forgiveness, life, salvation. And we might so, even then do parenthetically four. Um, that means that we have nothing to contribute to this. It's all good. That is correct, sir. Yeah. Nothing of our own works, no matter how good they may seem to be, constitutes our righteousness. Well, maybe that uh, possessive, you know, our works and our righteousness is a right. little bit of a, you know, grammatical hang up for folks. Because it's like, well, wait a minute, my works, my works don't contribute, but it is my righteousness, right? Yeah. So how, how can it be my righteousness if it's not by my works? Right. Well, this goes to the point that I made last week or the week before when we were talking about the difference between perception and observation. Mm, yeah. Perception is, this is how I see it. But as soon as the, the our perception is, we put ourselves, the I, the me, the mind, the our, we put ourselves into that thing that we're describing, we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's our works, our, like you pointed out. But as soon as I make it possessive, it's my works, my righteousness, my faith, this is my perception then of works and righteousness and faith versus what's the observation? Well, the observation is what the gospel communicates to, expresses to us, that we are made alive again by the word of grace promised in Christ. Righteousness is... Christ's righteousness is our righteousness, Jesus' resurrection. These are observable facts based on the witness of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How you, I guess a different way of saying it is, whatever you think or how you feel about it, which is perception stuff, doesn't matter. It's irrelevant, actually. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything. It simply is an observable fact of history. Right. And even if it's your possession... That doesn't necessarily mean it's your doing. I, th- I think that's the important right. distinction that the scriptures sure. make. It's like, no, this is your faith. You believe, right? And you mm-hmm. have righteousness, but these are gifts to you. They're given right. to you. They're not your work. Right. Uh, so while you possess them, you're not the originator of them. This is why we talk often about holding all things in the dead hand of faith. Mm. Mm. Because what ends up happening, as Dr. Nagel explains, is, and it gets this from Luther, as soon as we close our fingers around the gift, we are now closed off from any further gifts being placed into our hands. Mm, mm. That in our sinful selfishness, we are so afraid of losing what God has put in our hand that we clench it in a death grip, literally a death yeah, grip. Yeah. This is the language that, that Luther, why Luther uses this language of death and resurrection in his explanation of baptism in the catechism, for example. That the only way to pry our fingers open so that God can put more gifts into our hands is to do what needs to be done, which is to put us to death. Right. So maybe it would go something like this. Um, the pastor says, you are forgiven. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's actually a parable about this. You turn around and you refuse to forgive your neighbor. What happens to the forgiveness you received? Right. Now that you've claimed it as your own, but mm-hmm. not not with those loose fingers, right? Right. To, to give it to your neighbor, um, but rather you hold on to it. Now it's become right. um, actually a curse to you. Well, the, the way I riff off the parable then is to say, God puts forgiveness in your hand. You close your fingers around it, turn around and punch your neighbor in the face. Mm-hmm. That's what you're doing because once you close your fingers around that gift, now you have a fist. What are you going to do with your fist? It's like a person walking around with a hammer. Yeah. Yeah. You're just looking for a nail. Yeah. And it is our default setting to be unforgiving and ungracious <laughs> and unkind and to put the hour and the I and the me and the mind in front of everything even our relationships. Yeah, so that's the challenge of this possessive language mm-hmm. is that it, it can turn pretty quickly uh, right. into a curse to you and rather than a blessing. And it all hinges on what you noted, to me anyways, my opinion, it all hinges on 
is it our possession by way of giftedness mm-hmm. or is it our possession by way of I've earned this, I mm-hmm. deserve it, and therefore no one's going to take it away from me? Yeah, that 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 complete and utter what possessiveness right. to the point of excluding others. Yeah, we treat everything, we treat the things of salvation like they're our private property. Mm-hmm. Rather than a, a gift to be given. Right, a public trust. Yeah. So to continue then, this is what the prophet says and what Paul discusses so often. Quote, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1, verse 17. Romans 3.22 speaks of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There has now been made manifest not the hypocrisy of works, which men count as righteousness, but a righteousness has been revealed of such a kind that God reckons it as righteousness. Romans 4, verse 5. Mm. To one who trusts, all capitals, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he, Abraham, believed, all capitals, believed, the Lord. And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. I commend these two passages to you very highly, so that you may understand that faith is properly called righteousness. There it is. Huh. Faith is righteousness. Righteousness is faith. So to to be righteous <laughs> is not your own doing, of course, mm-hmm. as we heard from Romans. Um, it is to believe, simply to trust. To trust in Jesus is righteousness. Ah, okay. Yeah. And that fo- that follows also from Hebrews, right? Well, 100%. And this is what is sometimes referred to as Luther's Reformation breakthrough is to the, in the reading of Romans, the teaching of Romans, that we are not righteous in relation to God because we behave righteously, mm-hmm. but God is righteous when he behaves towards us righteously. Mm. Not by our so, works, but by his work. Right. Yeah. So it's not our faith, but God's faithfulness that is our righteousness. Mm. Namely then, Jesus. Yes, 100%. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't make that turn, then you've missed the Reformation. Mm. The whole of it. Uh, now, Melanch- Melanchthon's dealing with righteousness because of its relationship to justification, to that word. Correct. And so, ooh, it sounds like justification, righteousness, and faith are, what do you want to say, of one fabric? Yes. Is that, is that a fair way to say it? I think so. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You, you, un- you pull on one thread, you pull the entire thing apart. Yeah. This is what I just said. In my opinion... If you don't understand that faith is righteousness and righteousness is faith, the entire Reformation, you've bypassed the whole thing. Because how are you supposed to understand the sacraments? Mm, How are you supposed to understand sanctification? How are you supposed to understand the vocation of preaching or pastoring if you don't understand that faith is righteousness and that it's God's faithfulness, not your faith? Right. So, yeah. So, faith is not, well, I agree with you, pastor. I mean, there is, hopefully, God willing, by the Spirit, an agreement, an amen, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> to what the pastor mm-hmm. says. But the pastor is given to speak, regardless of whether or not you believe it or not, right? And and then, so he communicates God's faithfulness, which right. is the gift that creates trust in you as well. And that's Philip's previous point at the end of his section on grace, where he writes, the gift that is grace is the Holy Spirit himself. Mm, right, that's right. And whom God pours into our hearts, on those whom he has had mercy. The fruits of the spirit are faith, there you go, Mm -hmm. hope, love, and all the remaining virtues. So much for the term grace. That's what it is. 
Yeah, so it begins that we we emphasized that in the last episode that I mean it's two weeks ago, so I'm forgetting, but um, grace is gift, gift right. language, all gift, and it's all communicated to us, literally worked in us by the Holy Spirit. And this is pretty easy to uh, tease out, I think, if you look at the lives of the faithful, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as the New Testament even you know talks about, like say Abraham, you say, well, but wait a minute, let's read the actual story of Abraham and look at his external faithfulness you know <laughs> how, right. how righteously does he live uh, how many times do you pass off his wife as his sister um to how many kings right, right? and that's probably not even the least of it or the mo- worst of his crimes yeah well that's true I mean, uh the historians are are rec- or the prophets are recording um some of the most egregious examples probably right. <laughs> leaving out but all I, the other ones but just remember and the reason i say that i actually have context i'm not just kind of throwing out there speculatively mm-hmm. he break he's already broken the first commandment like he and his fathers did not worship god that's true they worshiped other gods this is in joshua 24 or whatever that or 22 that abraham and his fathers they had forgotten god and, and they had started worshiping the local deities there there was the emphasis you know of of ur of the chaldeans right right you know he he had to be called out moses yes. was that way too right you know God appears to him, so, and who? Yes, well, what should I call you? <laughs> trying to pass his wife off as his sister to escape consequences is bad, but that's a second table <laughs> kind that's of true. bad. Mm-hmm. The fact that God has to go and actually summon Abraham to faith goes to the point Melanchthon's making, which is if God is not faithful to his promise to Noah, then Abraham and his father and his family, they're doomed. Well, how do you want to deal with then the example of Noah? That's a good one. Right to say no one was found righteous except for Noah, right? How right, many people. What what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. Was he's the only one that listened? Is that how you would tease that out? Yeah, to God's because word? the word for obedience is the word in Hebrew and Greek for listen. Yeah, yeah. and he can't hear unless the Holy Spirit has mercy on whom he has mercy. And it's not in the text, but it, it does beg the question. Then, what, I mean, who else was God speaking to that refused to hear? Sure. Noah was the only one that listened, you know? Right. Yeah, but that's that's a common reoccurring theme of the faithful remnant, right? There, right. there are the few, and they're not the ones you would typically expect. I mean, Noah the drunkard. <laughs> right. right. Well, and it makes us uncomfortable because now we're, we've walked as, is it's it's inevitable that in this conver- these types of conversations, mm-hmm. you're going to walk into election and the language of election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. the question you asked, which is, well, God was faithful to his promise to the first man and woman. That's why Noah was called. That's why Abraham was called. Correct. That's why yeah. Moses was called. That's why only the midwives in Egypt remembered to cry out to God and pray to God because only they worship God. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. Right, right. Unexpected we characters. We don't like them when we really pay attention to what's being said in the texts. And yet God has preserved his word for thousands of years so that we might read it in the present tense and say, huh, so faith and moral virtue don't necessarily, they're not mutually exclusive is what you're saying. Yeah, I think it's one of the most awkward things about the the beautiful time of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year, Christmas, right? And then <laughs> right. we're given to read about the angel's visit to Joseph, you know, who is going to mm-hmm. quietly put her away because he's so virtuous. <laughs> right. You're like, right. actually, yeah, he's not so, such a great guy. <laughs> no. No, he's no. kicking her to the curb. I mean, he's going to do it quietly because he cares about her reputation. He's just a normal man. Yeah, he's just a normal guy. And uh, yeah, he doesn't believe her. No. And nobody, if my daughter came home, my daughter's 12, if she came home in October after her 13th birthday and said, dad, 
an angel spoke to me in the backyard and said that I'm going to give birth to the Messiah. Oh, and by the way, I'm pregnant. Oh yeah, P.S. I'm pregnant. There'd be some hunting. Mm. There would not be. I would not be going to church and praying and praising God. I would be hunting for the father of her child. I remember uh, more than once on House MD. You know, there would be some some girl that'd show up, and that was the whole diagnostic of the episode. Is like, how did she end up pregnant? It's like, is this is this actually a case of virgin conception? And no, of course not. But no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so but the point being you know joseph is considered a faithful joseph I and mean, we consider him faithful but mm -hmm. not really because he was so virtuous but simply because he believed the word of the angel I mean, he wasn't so virtuous before that david the apple of god's eye is anything but morally virtuous mm -hmm. and yet even in his worst moments his most criminal moments he never ceased praying he never ceased worshiping god mm -hmm. he never lost faith in god's faithfulness and he does listen, um, even after, you know, like his adultery and murder mm -hmm. and all of that. He does, I mean, he does listen to Nathan. Right, he does. <laughs> and there's repentance. And yet, he also continues to just yeah, do horrible right stuff. Back to it. Like, oh, good night. Right. But, but uh, I'm sympathetic. We'll just put it that way. Right. So to continue then in section in number two, section two here, it is well known that the common run of sophists define faith as the ascent to what is set forth in scripture. So the sophists, those who essentially will tell you whatever you want to hear in order to fill their bellies and live a life of ease and comfort, mm -hmm. will define faith as, well, you have to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior as it's set out in the Bible. That's how we communicate it today. Yeah. It's the same doctrine though. Yes. In the present tense, that's how we would say it. Therefore, they say that even the godless have this faith, which by the way, the Pope as recently as this year actually said too. Meaning that they agree what? That the Bible is true? Would they even go that far? What is this? No, ascent? I think they would say that even the godless can have godly faith in the sense of acting virtuously and assenting to the higher the higher moral uh, virtues. Righteousness. Yeah, okay. Yeah, righteousness. There Human righteousness. Thinking. Okay. Right. Justice. Mm -hmm. So that a righteous pagan has the opportunity or has within that virtuous life. So Cyrus the Great, for example, yeah. who even the Jews, he freed the Jews and sent them home, uh, that the Jews referred to him as uh, the savior, as a savior of the people. And according to this definition, a guy like Cyrus would be considered godly or at least um, possible, what do you want to say, available to entering into heaven when he dies. Well, and I think uh, the sophists would say, like Thomas would say, this this is a necessity. If they are acting righteously, then they must mm -hmm. know something of God's righteousness. Right. That's right. that whole synteresis, the spark of the divine that remi mm -hmm. remains after the fall, mm. that God's grace fans into flames. And they- So if they, yeah, if they know of God's righteousness in some way, then they must have some kind of faith. And this is why Melanchthon is probably so confounding because the Roman Catholics have at least seven different definitions of grace. <laughs> There's seven different kinds of grace. And therefore there are graces that are available to non-Christians. Yeah, we would we would attach like first article gifts is what we call. Yeah, we would call the first article kind of grace. In Peter, he refers to graces in the plural in his letter, mm -hmm. but he's not referring to salvation. He's referring to earthly types of benefits. Like rain and sunshine and yes, seeds. Exactly. And, yeah. Yes, and even Jesus points this out, right? God causes the sun and the rain to fall upon both the good and the wicked alike. That's one kind of favor, if you like. 
Right. It is a kind of favor. It is a kind of grace. It's just not salvific. Mm -hmm. And therefore, for Philip to say, no, grace is just this. It's this one thing. <laughs> that literally throws off the entire late medieval Roman scholastic system that is built on that definition of graces, different kinds of graces that give you faith, that strengthen you in faith, that pull you up the ladder of faith, that help you when you fall back down the ladder and backslide. There's all kinds of different kinds of grace. And maybe his motive is then to, I think, I think we would even agree with this, is to narrowly define these highly technical terms right. for the sake of precision. And, and we do it, like, like I just did a few moments ago, is like to say, well, while you could call what we call first article gifts grace, Mm -hmm. we, we don't for the sake of clarity, really. Sure. So that grace is properly speaking the gift of Jesus Christ. You see this most obviously at funerals in the present tense. Mm. It doesn't matter if the person who died was a Christian or not, or, or even religious, people will stand up and automatically assume this person's in heaven because they were a good person. And that's because they acted with, they were righteous yes, and just, yes. they were good and kind. They were, they volunteered at the soup kitchen. They were helpful. They were great mothers they were a great grandmother they were good workers whatever it might be it's effectively what santa claus theology it, that's what we call it santa claus theology and if you were to There's raise their the, positive ledger outweighs right. their negative and I, at least for myself as a pastor at those funerals it you have to be you have to be diplomatic i was gonna say tactful you know? tactful there there we go tactful you have to be tactful but you have to tell the truth Mm -hmm. At least I do. I, 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 I'm compelled so, as well. Yes, I am compelled by the word of God and by my call <laughs> documents, which are hanging on the wall right behind me. They're very specific. This is what I'm called to preach. Yeah. And just because Bob was a good guy, that's then, then every good guy is in heaven, is in the resurrection, which fits perfectly with what he's drawing out. The sophists in the late Middle Ages said essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. Because, in, well, and again, it's the Roman Catholic Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. It's the Roman Catholics Empire. They owned 73% of all the land in Europe by the 1500s. So that means then that everybody by virtue of being born in Europe is a Roman Catholic. Yeah. But what if you have no faith? Ah. Uh. What do you do with those people? They're Roman Catholics. They were baptized. They go to church twice a year. They go to confession twice a year because the law demands it. But we all know they weren't really, quote unquote, practicing Roman Catholics. What do you do with yeah. them? In the same way, we, we have the uh, Lutheran countries, primarily Scandinavia, but Germany too. Right. right? Where right. baptism is an entitlement of citizenry, not, yes. not, a, not a gift of faith. Right. Yeah. And actually, if you want to see how that works, go back and read uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Yeah. Because in Denmark in the 1860s, uh, that was essentially the case too. Lutheranism was the state religion. Mm -hmm. Everyone was baptized just by virtue of where you were born at. And so Kierkegaard attacks the church venomously for their faithlessness hmm. and essentially belonging to the church was a, a matter of social status and networking yeah it's like a kiwanis or lions club or something yeah exactly hmm. so essentially what we're summarizing here is that nothing changes hmm. it's just the way that we we bend this is the way the old adam bends yeah so then to continue according to them according to the sophists melanchthon writes even the unrighteous believe and there is in the soul a, a neutral quality common to both godless and godly, that their position may not collapse when they see that scripture says that the just shall live by faith, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And likewise, that righteousness is by faith, Romans chapter 9, 
verse 30, and Romans chapter 10, verse 6. They invent another faith, which they call complete, formata in the Latin. That is, joined with love, Hmm. which is a point that I don't think we can stress enough, is that for the Roman Catholics, to the present tense, faith is formed by love. Lutherans confess that love is a fruit of faith. We literally believe the opposite of each other when it comes to this. Hmm. I'm trying to think about the language of this. Um, Faith is, maybe they'd say it this way, faith is confirmed by love. So is that like running no, with James? literally formed. No, literally formed. Faith is formed by love. Rather than as a gift. Right. So acts of love, charity, grace, mercy. Grace inflames that faith in you, this, this neutral quality in you, this will. Mm. That's what it is, by the way. It's the will. Is <laughs> there is grace, prevenient grace, pre-grace, right? Grace that acts to inflame that faith. But as Jesus himself says, to whom much is given, much is to be expected. And therefore, if you receive this grace, what are you going to do with it now? And do you want the kind of grace that sustains you in that faith? And do you want the kind of grace that actually pumps you up and makes you stronger in the faith and allows you to grow in grace and faith? Yeah. Hmm. Well, where's the evidence of that? Love. It's interesting because, uh, you know, Paul, I think can be argued as pretty binary about faith. Either you have it or you Pretty don't. Pretty binary about yeah. faith, yes. Yeah, and, and by faith, he means trust in Christ. Right. Um, maybe John's gospel? I don't know. We've been studying that Bible class. Uh, I think John's pretty clear that there's not, two sides. He's not, but he's not quite as binary about it. So think about like at the beginning, they believe- he's, he's not as aggressive as Paul is, but yeah, it's a different, it, again, it's a different context. Well, I mean, think about Nicodemus. You know, he, he believes, but he doesn't understand right? He doesn't submit mm-hmm. to baptism. He doesn't get it. And it, Jesus doesn't hold it really against him because he hasn't even revealed Christian baptism right. to him yet. He's right. telling him things that he can't comprehend. Right. Uh, that's not what faith is. It's like, I understand mm-hmm. what you're saying um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a, you know, noetic kind of sense or a mind knowledge kind of way, but rather faith is to say, I'm with you, right? I'm with you, Jesus. You show me where I'm, show me where we're going. Right. But faith can't function apart from the Holy Spirit and the word. Hmm. So we, mm. we still have to make the assumption that Nicodemus's initial meeting with Jesus is why faith is instilled in Nicodemus. And he shows up that, at, the, at Christ's death. That's why he shows up at his death to get the body. Yep. And much like the thief on the cross, Nicodemus doesn't immediately need baptism because he has the sacrament right there in front of him. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what I'm thinking of then is the way people talk about strong or weak faith. Mm-hmm. Oh, Absolutely. Oh, I mean, Jesus uses that. Oh, you have little faith, right? Right. And what does what little faith? But he doesn't but, use the term strong or weak. He says little. And he's being, uh, what do you want to say? Highly sarcastic. He means <laughs> you have no faith. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Little is effectively no. If you had faith like the smallest of all seeds, you could make a mountain fall into the ocean. No, that's a rhetorical device again, because mm. none of them can even exercise a demon. Yeah. So I, when my evangelical friends say, well, but if you have the right kind, if you have strong faith, if you're, if you're strong in your faith, you can do, say to this mountain, and I'll always ask, well, when was the last time you threw a mountain in the ocean? Then you must not have any faith according to that logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is not a literal expression. This is no, a- Jesus is scalding in his sarcasm. Mm. Right, because if faith faith trusts in him, right, then that faith does whatever he does. Correct. Does that make sense? So, if, not my will, but your will be done. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. This is the problem we get into when, like, for example, in John, when he says, whatever you ask in my father's name, he will give it to you. Mm. And then we say, but I prayed for this and that and the other thing, and I never got any of it. It's like, okay, but did you ask what Jesus's will was uh -huh, or what right. the father's will is? That's in my name. That's what that means. Right. And Paul's very clear. We don't even know what to pray for. The Holy Spirit has to pray for us. We're not saying that, that prayer is kind of a pointless venture. Prayer is a work of the Holy Spirit in you. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a, oh, I don't want to say a centering activity, but I mean, it is meant to draw one back to, to God's word, back to what God has revealed, right? right. So, to Jesus. So, yeah. So you ask the question, like, here's what I'm praying for. And then I always, that's why I, how I instruct the children anyway, is to say, well, is that something God has promised to you? Well, to go back to our early reference to Abraham, uh, this is pastoral care 101 as far as I'm concerned. Someone comes to me and says, well, I've, I've violated or trespassed the fourth commandment, the sixth commandment, the eighth commandment, the 10th commandment. I don't automatically rush in to try and fix that problem because <laughs> that's not the root problem. Nope. The reason that they broke the fourth commandment and disrespected or dishonored their mother or father or an authority is because the first commandment has already been violated. Mm -hmm. You have to jump the fence of the first commandment to get to the fourth commandment, for example. Make so let's walk this God. back to, exactly, yeah. you've made yourself, you put yourself in the position of God. Let's walk this back and ask, how has baptism been, how have you been cut loose from your baptismal identity in regards to fear, love, and trust of God? Mm -hmm. Let's address this because once we address this and we locate you in relation to Christ and your baptism, now whatever you've done, you are freeing Christ to take full responsibility for, let's say, disrespecting your mom and dad, robbing a liquor store, committing adultery, cheating on a test. Like You can accept responsibility for that only after we've reconnected you with the only relationship and, and your true identity. Thinking about how many folks I've encountered that have been run off from the church in one way or another, and usually for some second table thing that they sure. were violating, and right. the church tried to, you know, through the pastor, tried to hold them to account for that, and they ended up just leaving. Well, it makes sense mm -hmm. <laughs> because that thing, um, they didn't actually deal with the, the root problem. They only dealt with mm -hmm. their external, you know, um, what do you wanna say, earthly relationship the way that sin right. has been manifested there mm -hmm. and not really dealt with the fact that actually you're just saying i disagree with with god correct i disagree with god's word i disagree with what he right. says and let's deal with that right. and if we're going to reconcile the other thing will spin its way out we'll, mm -hmm. we'll work through that we'll figure out you know what's going to be best for your neighbor what's going to be best for well, you i'm sure you've had this experience too of i've worked with other pastors to receive members and to transfer members mm -hmm. because of a discretion in the congregation that wasn't a felony it wasn't a criminal type of situation except for a couple actually a couple okay. instances it was it was a criminal situation but in the one instance that i can talk about it was just someone was in jail and got out of jail they went back to the congregation that they were at before they got arrested and they went to the pastors plural went through confession and absolution these pastors had a relationship with them while they were in prison but the people in the congregation were uncomfortable with them being at church mm -hmm. Sure. Because they're saying, well, this is a criminal. And the pastors are saying, we've gone through confession absolution. He or she is repentant. They've been restored to full communion. They've paid the penalty for their crime. But the people say, we just can't get around this. Mm, yeah. Again, good, bad, or indifferent. And I've worked with those pastors and they say, well, okay, I'll receive him over here or you receive her over there. But what we're saying is, forgiveness doesn't absolve you of, of the earthly consequences hmm. of your actions, hmm. whether they're criminal or not. But 
through confession, through repentance and confession and the restoration that comes with the forgiveness of sins, which is grace and justification, right? you're restored to the one relationship that matters, your relation to Christ. Maybe not in that particular place. Right, but your relation to your neighbor may have been broken irre mm -hmm. irreparably. Mm. It's like when two people, you know, when someone commits an, uh, commits an affair, commits adultery, the marriage may be beyond saving because one or both simply say, you broke the marriage contract, I can't look at you anymore, I can't forgive you, this is something I can't get past. And then they separate, they divorce. Now, as a pastor, you and I both have had this experience of, well, who gets to stay and who has to go? Yeah, in the congregation. In the congregation. Right. And I, on my vicarage, this happened, where they both agreed to stay. And, yeah, good luck with that. Right, it was, it was, yeah, it was just a fondue of, of bubbling rage under the surface. But the point is that this is the challenge of pastoral vocation is to recognize that this too is a sin and Jesus died for this too. And this too is forgiven in Christ. But you're over here separated from Christ, whether by your own willfulness or by that of others. Mm -hmm. How do we restore you to your baptismal identity? How do we rest restore you to a full um, relation to Christ so that you can enjoy grace, righteousness, the hope of the resurrection, and do it in such a way that you can also then hopefully repair your broken relationships with your neighbors. Yeah. Sometimes, most of the time, it's possible. I think Sometimes so. it's not. But you it require, maybe for time, requires some distance. 100%. Yeah, time heals some aspect of the wound, right. I suppose. Right, but you know, another example, it's on my mind, uh, brother pastor, the treasurer embezzled a whole bunch of money from the church. Yeah. And the congregation decided not to charge him for it and said, listen, you have to pay all the money back. Mm -hmm. And then after you pay all the money back, then you can come back to church. And then we'll talk about whether or not you're going to remain a member here. And it seemed to go well. And then the person came back and immediately wanted to be on church council again and was upset that he wasn't allowed to be on the church council. And they're Seriously? trying to explain, wow. the pastor explains to him, dude, you've broken the trust. You burned the bridge, literally. It's a, and money in the church is a huge one. It's right under sexual indiscretions, money. Like those yeah. are the two big ones. Yeah. And he ended up leaving and going to a different church. But same thing of I'll work with you as much as I can. But at a certain point, when you, when you confess your own unrepentance, there's not a whole lot I can do after that because it's not I who have turned my back on you. Jesus hasn't turned his back on you. But to your point, like the unforgiving steward, you turned your back on him. So, I mean, working with what Melanchthon's dealing with here, um, you know, in these examples that we've been talking about, it, this is where if, if faith is formed by love, right, we'd look at these situations and say there's faith, faithlessness, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's lack of love. And that, right. and it's both ways, both the, the one who's offended and the one who's been offended, right? Right. Um, that if the one who's been offended can't forgive then, or, you know, doesn't show love to them and receive them, then, then right. their faith is incomplete. Well, these people aren't faithful because they would forgive me. And uh, Right, 100%. And yeah. you and I hear that all the time. Mm. Why can't you just forgive me? I, well, because one, it's not my forgiveness that you need. Mm -hmm. And two, that's actually the wall of division between us right now is it's not love and then forgiveness. It's forgiveness that then produces love. This is why yeah. I tell couples, I got to marry some folks coming up here in September. And when I talk with them, it's, do you understand the reality of marriage? It's ongoing hostility mm -hmm, punctuated right. by moments of tenderness. And I'm, a, usually I'm the first person to ever even say that to them because they're filled with all these romantic ideals and these sugar-coated lies about what marriage is. 
and isn't. And my point though in saying that is if you try and ground your marriage in love alone, you're going to shipwreck. By love, you mean like passion. I just mean love in general. Love changes. You know that. I know that. There's the passionate, erotic, eros kind of love when you're mm -hmm. first married, which hopefully translates eventually into filial uh, and agape kinds of love. Mm -hmm. But to the point then, you and I, I think you and I would argue agape love, limitless, measureless, unconditional love cannot exist. It cannot breathe and live in a marriage apart from forgiveness in Christ's name. And it that's, can, yeah, it can't be even be found in marriage apart from receiving right. that forgiveness. Yeah. And so I always argue then, especially in marriage counseling, you have to, the foundation of your marriage and the foundation of your family must be forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, specifically Jesus' name. Yeah, Don't absolutely. forgive each other. Forgive each other in Jesus' name. There's a huge difference between those two. And uh -huh. then as a consequence, you're set free to argue. You're set free to forgive. You're set free to live in comfort. You're set free to go struggle together. Whatever comes, if you're if the relationship is grounded in forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, love then will be limitless and measureless, but it will be in this ongoing simmering hostility because you're sinners. Yeah. This is the importance of the simul. And you can't, well, you can try to do it. Say, you know, all the ways that people kind of halfway forgive, right? Like, right. it's okay, or don't worry about it. But try to say that, don't worry about it in Jesus' name. It doesn't mm -hmm. quite work. It doesn't have the same ring to it. No. Uh, <laughs> if you say, I forgive you in Jesus' name, incidentally, uh, it does tend to be a kind of a conversation stopper, especially right. in terms of the excuses and, you know, all the ways that we want to not accept that forgiveness. Right. So Jesus, it's, it's not that Jesus' name has this magical power, um, you know, but that the forgiveness of Christ does kind of stop mouths, doesn't it? It shuts right. up, shuts up the, uh, whatever pushback we, we might want to give. Sure. No, I, I agree with that hundred percent. And I think this is where we fail. And this is Melanchthon's point as we get back into it. We fail as pastors if we don't get this right. It's mm. faith and love is the fruit versus, well, show me what you're doing. Show me that you're loving and that you're righteous and you're kind and you're just, and then I'll show you a person who has faith. Isn't that a thing where, I mean, we, maybe unintentionally, but we undermine faith by by looking for fruits. Right. So it's not that, that we don't hope for fruits or that God hasn't right. promised fruits from faith. Sure. But to come along to somebody who says, that, you know, who, who just doesn't seem to be evidencing their faith very well, right. <laughs> let's put it that way. Uh, right. Not that we can see, that's part of the problem is our perception, you know, well, externally. The thing is the most loving people that I know at present um, are all dead soldiers hmm. because they, at least three of them, they sacrifice their own life to protect the person at their shoulder. Mm -hmm. Like, And this is why at, you and I know at Memorial Day services, that's the verse that's read, no greater love has a man than this, than he laid on his life for his fellows, for his friends. Now you and I know that's referring to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But in a civil religious context, it's applied to these military veterans, or well, they're not veterans anymore; they're dead. It's almost, but it's almost the same as uh, you know a jihadist kind of approach, isn't it? A little bit, yeah, it is. Yeah, a little they're bit. Saying that, or a lot. I just don't want to. I don't want to say that because I don't want to offend anybody. But it it is the civil religious bent of that verse of if I sacrifice myself for my for my brothers. I'm essentially guaranteed to go straight to heaven. This, it's called the myth of redemptive violence. Yeah, that love will overcome whatever lack of faith I have. Right, it'll, it'll overcome the distance between heaven and hell and earth. 
Not something. And this is my point though, and this is a really hard conversation I have when I counsel veterans is that, yeah, they made the ultimate sacrifice in this life. They literally laid down their life. They sacrificed themselves so that you could come home to your family. And yeah, I don't think there's anything more loving than anybody can do. You and as a parent, and I know this too, there's nothing more loving that you or I could possibly do for our children than to sacrifice our own life uh, mm -hmm. for our children. And we will, whether we want to or not. But it doesn't <laughs> justify. But it does not justify us. That's the point. And so if we go with faith formed by love, then those dead soldiers are the most faithful people. Well, actually, my dogs are also the most faithful people. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And George Hagel said that, but to uh, his contemporary. Mm. But uh, this is the this is why words matter, definitions matter, and getting them in the right order matters. Yeah, you don't have to be a jerk about it to other people, but nonetheless, it, it is important. And maybe well, that's something for the listener too to say: Hey, when you are having conversations with either Lutheran brothers and sisters or non-Lutheran brothers and sisters, be kind, be gentle, but also be firm. Mm -hmm. Words matter and definitions matter and let's get on the same page so that we don't spin off into an argument that actually didn't have to happen if we had just stopped at the front end and said, hey, when you said I was really blessed by this, what do you mean by blessed? Mm, yeah. Or God's just so gracious. What do you mean? Yeah. Let's define that term. I was also thinking about uh, kind of the flip of flip side of the story you're saying is like if somebody's life is not evidence of love, so the complete opposite mm -hmm. of the soldier. Um, right. Uh, pastors go wrong or fellow Christians go wrong saying, well, then they must be faithless. Right. Because mm -hmm. they lack, with the lack of love, then that indicates a lack of faithfulness. It's the same error, just in, a, in the opposite direction. Opposite direction. Right. Yeah. And, and this, where does it really rub us? Oh, like Nuremberg or Dahmer or any of these, you know, mass murderers, mm -hmm. hideous war, you know, criminals who, confess and are forgiven. Well, I think Ted Bundy, I think you go on YouTube, there's actually some famous interviews with, I think it's James Dobson. Mm, that's right. We were, no, one, it was Colson, wasn't it? We was it Chuck Colson? It was one of those guys that went and interviewed him and it really angered a lot of people that he not only talked about his Christian upbringing, but also the fact that in jail, there was a movement back toward faith. You're like, well, how's that possible? Because his actions don't confirm that. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's the the rub with faithfulness, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that it's Christ's faithfulness given to you, received as a gift, right? Um, and how that's worked out in your life is also gifted, right? Right, exactly. Mm. This is the problem with human definitions of righteousness when we superimpose it on God's righteousness as a general term. Is is it righteous? So is it unrighteous to kill fourteen women, but it's okay to kill fourteen million people if you're a Christian emperor, for example? Uh. Is it okay to kill 14 million people who aren't Christians because you're a Christian emperor, but it's not okay to kill 14 women because you're a, a godless, psychopathic serial killer? Hmm. This is human righteousness. This is what ends up happening. That's why I go to a law library and see all the law books. When we separate God's righteousness from Christ, we start having these arguments. Yeah, it's kind of a flexible scale. Oh, it's isn't it? horrifying. <laughs> Ugh. And 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 it's def and who defines it is also part of the challenge with it, right? Right. It, right. it shifts from generation to generation or context to context. Oh, we see that in the present tense in our society. Mm -hmm. So then, back to the book, the righteousness is by faith. They invent another faith, which they call complete or formata, as I said, that is joined with love. The other kind they call incomplete, informis. It is found even in the godless who lack love. Well, here you go. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, these sharp fellows pretend that the apostle falsely attributed to faith that which is characteristic of love 
in order that by this bait he might invite as many as possible to faith. Now they have invented, quote, infused, quote, acquired, quote, general, and quote, special faith also, and strange words of all kinds. This is key here. They invented the word infused grace. Oops. Which really caught on amongst both Roman Catholics and Protestants to the present tense. Mm. Yeah, infused grace, infused faith. Right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Infusion meaning what? It, uh, it's collaborative, it's cooperative, it, it, it uh, joins your bloodstream. Infusio, yeah, it gets injected into you. <laughs> it's like uh, you become Captain America or something. Right, right, yeah, it's like the super soldier formula, uh -huh. theorem. Serum, there we go, super soldier, serum. <laughs> Yeah, serum, that's right. <laughs> so Philip then writes as uh, in following, let us dismiss those trifles for after a little, we shall continue, we shall confute the sophists with actual facts so that they must concede that faith is not what they themselves have called it. Hmm. Mm. So there you go. Faith formed by love, wrong. Incomplete faith, that is the faith that even the godless have who lack love, wrong. Infused grace, they invented it not real, not scriptural. Oops. Yeah. Man, that's good. Yeah, it is. That's the challenge with, um, like we said, with words, is that we want to be precise. We want to define, but we, like I said at the, at the front end of the show, um, we don't want to import meaning into the words. Right. Rather, let the words speak for themselves, um, namely from the scriptures. And that's mm -hmm. that uh, essential, like you said, hermeneutic tool or interpretive tool. Mm -hmm. is to let scripture define itself right right you know look at context look at historic usage look at gr the grammar but look at how that word is used elsewhere you know and we 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 are blessed with a um like a greek old testament um i don't know your preference lies towards the hebrew but it does it, it can help um understand new testament usage you know or, or maybe and, and there's times where like a new testament word in greek is um is used, I think, even intentionally contrary to the common use. It, it takes on a new use by the evangelist or the apostle. Yes. You know, and right. uh, liturgy is one of those words, I think, where it's just, mm -hmm. it, it means something different. So you can look at like, oh, how did a Roman, how would a Roman use that word? And you're like, well, that's not, it's fairly clear from the text. That's not how it's being used here. Right. Um, yeah, the way Paul uses the term is different than even the first century Romans were using the term. Paul adapts that term for christian use and like you just pointed out the way that we understand the present tense well and then that happens too yeah it shifts over time afterwards right mm -hmm. i don't think there's anybody really in my congregation if i put that to them wouldn't go oh yeah that's totally different than what we mean or what i understand by liturgy mm -hmm. in the present tense yeah because right. i think most people just assume liturgy means worship mm. and by worship they mean stuff we do on sundays yeah this is why you and i like go to Steenst. yeah that's true uh, justification is one of those words where, I mean, if you just took like the common usage today and tried to import that into the scriptures, right, you're going to get a very different doctrine than what the scriptures scriptures themselves uh, are teaching, right? Right. Yeah. What Jesus is saying. So, yeah, I'm justified. Yeah. To sum up, too, again, what we really raised in the last episode is if you're looking for a quote unquote systematic theology from the Reformation or of the Reformation, this is it. The, the Loci Communes of Philip Melanchthon, the 1521 edition, this is it. Mm -hmm. If you want a summary, a powerful, explosive, provocative summary of everything that they were teaching in Wittenberg, 
that they all agreed was the best systematic approach to all of these doctrines that had ever been written, mm -hmm. not just in the moment, but ever. It's this. And it held on that in that usage for at least 80 to 100 years. Yes, absolutely. Historically. Until yeah. people got fed up with it and tried to get rid of it. Well, I, I wonder if they got fed up with it or if they just got bored with it. I think they got bored with it. Familiarity breeds contempt. And mm -hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't support a, a bent toward the old scholastic way of doing things. Yeah, which is where Lutheranism moved, yeah. you know, right. as a movement. It, 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 it moved towards uh, returning to the scholastic and actually then consequently returning to the medieval practices as well, mm. along yeah. with the teaching. It kind of did. Mm. So that's a good place to end this. <laughs> Light that fuse for next episode. Not a happy note, but that's okay. But we will actually continue with this in the next episode. We're going to jump ahead now to uh, section four, which is where he really gets into more about faith, but also faith and Christ and the Father in relation to the law and in relation to what happens apart from faith. Mm -hmm. So he really starts hammering more on what he kind of draws out here in two of Roman Catholics have all these different definitions and how all this all fits together in this kind of puzzle that really explains faith and love and so forth, righteousness. And from Langton, as he's done in every one of these episodes that we've we've covered on the Lochi, he just brings scripture out and goes, well, what does the Bible actually say? Yeah. Where's the word, where's infused grace in the Bible? It doesn't exist. You invented that. <laughs> done. That, that argument settled. You invented it. And that's not to say it's not, it, it's not to say that infused grace is an incorrect argument, but where did you get it from? And why did you have to import it into the biblical definition of righteousness to support your point? Yeah. You're asking the why question. Yeah. So to sum up then, grace is nothing but the forgiveness or remission of sins, period. Faith is righteousness, period. Oh, by the way, and that righteousness is Christ. Period. And grace is Christ. So basically faith and righteousness and forgiveness, that's it's that's the jesus for you for you yes exactly very specifically jesus for you mm. so we'll leave you with that jesus for you grace and faith and righteousness is all just jesus for you so thank you as always for giving us your time and attention for the past hour and uh, thank you for supporting everything we do at higher things and for supporting this podcast please leave us a positive review if you think we deserve it pass along the show to your friends and family recommend us and uh, we'll see you next week maybe for ish. a brand new episode ish ish next week ish <laughs> but yeah we love you and we'll see you later peace <laughs> <laughs>